This episode is brought to you by Blockdaemon. You'll be hearing all about them later from me later in the episode, but now on with the show. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another weekly roundup edition of On the Margin. I am joined by my bombastic co-host, Mr. Mark Yusko. Mark, ah, welcome to the wow, show. Wow, yes, that I've been, I've been, I've been described as that many times. Um, <laughs> in fact, I, I tell the story all the time. My wife saw me speak one time, and she said, "You can't say things like that." I'm like, well, what I say? She says, "No, no, you say things so forcefully." So, so what's wrong with that? So, well, people will believe you. That's how she, the whole idea. She says, "What if you're wrong?" I said, "I'm wrong all the time. It's changed my mind." All right, so. It is hot, like super hot down here in North Carolina. Uh, hurricane hot almost, um, which we'll get to. But um, so I'm not wearing socks, but I brought my socks because this is this is important. I mean, I have the now these are the cold storage socks from Outsocks, but I'm using it for uh, and cold storage is good, but I'm using it for crypto winter. Uh, mm. Winter is raging. I mean, raging, like a whole bunch of stuff going on. We're probably going to talk about it in terms of layoffs and downsizing. And it um, doesn't mean there's not enthusiasm in the market. There is. I was just out in Seattle for for a conference and there was you know plenty of enthusiasm. But uh, winter is going to be with us for a while. So, Yes. Yeah, it certainly will. And, and th- you know, when it comes to, you know, layoffs and, and everything, I mean, that is not something that's isolated to crypto markets in general. I mean, you can see this broadly exactly. reflected across yeah. the tech sector, but also just the the economy writ large, I would say. Yep. Um, so we've got a whole bunch of different stories to move through today, guys. Uh, what we're going to be kicking things off with is actually this uh, Jamie Dimon, very colorful language here. Uh, we're talking about bracing for an economic hurricane. That's going to lead into uh, kind of some of our our talk about, uh, you know, layoffs and, and all that kind of thing. But, you know, Jamie Dimon, he made some waves, uh, you know, in recent weeks. He talked about oh, bracing. Well, well, econo- well done. Made some waves, pun intended. <laughs> made some, I like it. Wow, I didn't even mean to do that. Look at I that. Like uh, it. <laughs> I like it. I appreciate it. Give me too much credit, though. I'm just saying more. Um, but, uh, you know, he said this in a room full of analysts. So, you know, uh, Diamond was warning about three three things here, right? So he's worried, uh, worried about quantitative tightening. That's scheduled to begin this month. Crazy that it hasn't even begun yet. Uh, you know, but they're talking about, uh, I think, mm-hmm. you know, something like $47 billion, uh, a month in terms of QT spread between treasuries mm-hmm. and mortgage-backed Take securities. The and they're, Take the under. And they're, well, so they're talking about ramping that up to $95 billion, Yeah. Um, the you know, way soon. <laughs> All right. So that's that's one factor. Uh, he's talking about, you know, what worried about the war in Ukraine uh, and oil could hit $150 or $175 a barrel. And basically, this is going to translate into them being much tighter with their balance sheet, uh, JP Morgan, than they have been uh, historically. So what's what's your take here in general when you hear a guy like uh, Jamie Dimon saying this stuff, Mark? Ah, <laughs> uh, God, you know, Jamie. I mean, bombastic. Jamie, Jamie, Jamie. There's, there's a guy who is bombastic. I mean, where was Jamie talking about higher oil prices when you know their firm was saying oil was was going to never see a hundred dollars again? I mean, mm. so and, <laughs> war in Ukraine. No, there's, there's, it's just a dumb topic. This the 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 oil problem has nothing to do with the war in Ukraine. I mean, it just doesn't. It has to do everything with lack of investment into infrastructure around oil and gas and massive numbers of bankruptcies that took supply out of the market. But it didn't just happen now. It happened two years ago. We went super long energy two years ago 
because of this JB Investments. We've talked about this. And we made a ton of money for clients. On If it, if it weren't for that, actually, our funds would have gotten crushed because of all the tech wreck. You know, the, the Tiger Cubs getting just absolutely destroyed. And I mean, we don't have money with Melvin, but, you know, Melvin shutting down. So all kinds of crazy stuff. But this idea that and he's, he's, he's reporting the news. It's, it's, he's literally like a weather forecaster, right? He's just reading the teleprompter saying, Jamie, these are things we should talk about. Quantitative tightening, to your point, the Fed hasn't done anything. The mm-hmm. market already did it. The Fed has raised 75 basis points on the Fed funds rate, which nobody uses. But interest rates spiked all over the place from the two-year to the 10-year. And the, the amount of liquidity that gushed out of the market, right? More like the anti, you know, the wave after the tsunami when it recedes. Um, that's the problem. So Jamie is trying to, um, I don't know what he's trying to do. He's trying to obfuscate the fact that he do not want to lend. Well, it's not that he doesn't want to lend. It's that nobody wants to borrow. Everybody is full up on debt. And, mm. you know, they're going to they're going to control their balance sheet. Yeah, that's your decision, Jamie. Right. Right. I mean, has yeah. to do with, there's no demand for debt. And I don't know. Yeah, I'm not a big fan, actually. I yeah, I mean, he, to, you know, to, to his credit, I mean, he did say one of the big differences, right, uh, between what's going on now and the, the financial crisis in 2008 um, is, you know, is the desire for. Uh, you know, global desire for U.S. Treasuries, right? So he's talking about, um, you know, central banks, commercial banks, foreign exchange trading firms uh, as those kind of being the three the three major buyers of U.S. Treasuries. Yeah. Um, and he says one thing that, you know, might actually be different this time is that some of those players don't have the capacity or the desire to soak up as many U.S. bonds, right? And 100%. Rich is why, yeah. which is why take the way under on the central bank. Mm-hmm. To, you know, lowering their balance sheet. It's just not going to happen. There, yeah. there, there is massive need for financing because of the deficit. And it was just, oh, but the deficit is much smaller. Yeah, it, it's, it's only a trillion dollars now, down mm-hmm. from three trillion. Okay. The budget, in theory, is supposed to balance, right? If you we're going to spend money. You should probably take in some money that you can spend. That's how families work. Um, but, you know, this this idea that some, who's going to buy the bonds to I will give I will give the, the point merit. Chinese aren't buying. Japanese aren't. I mean, Japanese aren't buying. Russians aren't buying the uh, FX. I mean, that, that's one of the things you can see in the yen, right? The dollar yen normally during hurricanes is really strong. But the yen has just gotten obliterated this year. And the reason it's usually strong is because of the unwinding of this this yen carry trade. Um, But nobody's doing that anymore. Not nobody, but there's there's much lower demand for global arbitrage uh, of all types. And hurricane is the right term. I mean, it's absolutely the right term. And, you know, we're starting hurricane season down here in the southeast. I think they just announced the first tropical storm heading for Florida. So hurricanes, absolutely the right term. Like most things, 
when non-economists get up and try to play economists, it's probably not something we should all pay a lot of attention to. Yeah. I mean, and you know, the, the last thing maybe I'd, I'd want to get your take on here before we move on is just sometimes it's hard for me to know how to interpret statements like this when guys, when guys like Jamie Dimon specifically say stuff like this. Yeah. Like, you know, it, it, what it kind of gives me the vibe of is, uh, you know, Bill Ackman in March of 2020 vibes mm-hmm. uh, saying hell is coming. Right. Yeah. And it's kind of like, you know, at that time, you know, first of all, I, I will just say I, I think I get it. Everyone's got to play their game. I understand that that's the that's the game that hedge fund managers talk play. Yeah, they talk I about. thought that was a little irresponsible at the time. I mean, in, in the grips of a panic, I just thought that was crazy. By the way, he, he was calling for six or seven percent uh, interest rates. <laughs> Bill Ackman is on Twitter saying we need to normalize rates to six or seven percent. What would that do? I mean, that would break. Nothing. I mean, I don't think anyone's he's a calling. Dork. Look, he, yeah. he, he's just an arrogant dork that thinks the rules don't apply to him. I mean, that what he does by going on television like that is is a form of stock manipulation. Mm. Right, hundred percent form of stock manipulation. If you get up and you say things. To affect something that impacts what you already hold, right? Telling people that uh, you know the world is ending because you're short already. Now, there's no law against that, I guess. I mean, there should be, but mm. there isn't. People do it all. I mean, the big guys do it all the time. Um, but you know, look. Here's the thing: if the Fed were to raise interest rates to seven percent. How many ships in the Chinese harbor would that allow to dock and unload and, and reload? Zero. If the Fed raised raised to 7%, how many uh, less casualties would there be in Ukraine? Zero. Uh, if the Fed would raise raised to 7%, uh, how much faster would the XL pipeline get approved? Zero days. Um, none of the things that the people think the Fed has power over are impacted by interest rates. What's impacted by interest rates is the chart you have on the screen. Um, so this is net interest paid by the the federal government. I just thought this was a this was a cool chart. So basically, what you're looking at here is the interest that's owed uh, by the federal government at current interest rates, or what it actually you know what we've actually owed over the last twelve months, um, which is. Uh, four hundred and four billion dollars, uh, and then they're they're kind of giving you different scenarios here, right? If we were to multiply interest rates from where they are now, and you can you can pretty quickly see, right, that as you go, you know, times two, times three, times four, the you know the amount of interest that the U.S. government owes, uh, you know, creeps up from kind of four hundred and forty billion to you know at you know a four times multiplier to almost a trillion dollars, right, on an annual basis, which is even for the United States now, right? I know we we. Uh, you know, don't shy away from deficits. That's a really large number. And I think, you know, to re- to reconnect this to what Jamie Dimon was saying, that becomes a problem when there's less global demand for uh, U.S. treasuries, which is how we we fund ourselves. Mm-hmm. The, the caveat to that, right, is that the federal, I think we are already the largest buyer. The Federal Reserve is already the largest buyer of treasuries. Sure. And right. it, it it's very unclear to me, at least, how much longer it, it seems like there's more room to run in that game, so to speak, right? If you look at Japan as kind of a the poster child for this, right? How, like how many JGBs does the does the Japanese central bank own? I mean seventy four percent. 
There you go. So, I mean, I, you could say that that's different with the United States, but, uh, you know. Not different. I'm just not, not different. Sure. We're yeah. just 11 years behind. Yeah. Look, um, the Jade, Japan, the Bank of Japan, and we've talked about this, in 2007 said no more bond buying. Right. No more QQE. They add the, the, the extra Q for qualitative and quantitative easing. No yep. more bond buying. They were at 80, mm-hmm. 80% of the GDP on their balance sheet. Today, they're at 136. <laughs> so they clearly bought more bonds. So the idea that the Fed isn't going to 136%, well, they're going to 136%. They're going mm. to buy more bonds. They are not going to shrink their balance sheet. Right. They might for a month or two months or six months, but over the long term. And the amount of, of money creation that is coming, because one, one point I will, I will agree, I don't like to agree with Jamie Dimon, but one thing I will agree with is the response to the hurricane, the FEMA kind of disaster relief that's going to be required after this hurricane is going to be monstrous. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it, won't be, it won't be as big as the stupidity of what happened in the lockdown stuff where people were like, oh my God. And that was just an excuse for the cult of Kelton MMTers to show how bad their theory was. It's idiotic. Um, you know, we can print unlimited money and does no impact. I mean, no impact like the fact that housing prices went up 40%, four zero in 12 months. You think that's normal? You think that's a good thing? You think it's you think it's a good thing that the average family has no prayer of buying a home in their twenties? You, you think that's good somehow? It, it just makes me it makes me angry. It makes me angry. It makes me angry too. We're we're going to talk about one real world consequence here of what the Fed does right when they're injecting and withdrawing liquidity right out of the yeah. market. We're going to talk about. Um, employment here. And we're going to talk about layoffs, right? A, a potential side effect, right? Of this economic hurricane. So I just want to kind of set the scene here with a couple of charts. So, uh, you know, one, one thing to point to point out is that unemployment re- remains historically low, right? So on this chart on the left, we're looking at US initial jobless claims. Uh, and then we're looking at continuous jobless claims. That thick blue dot, for those of you who are following along on video, uh, that's 2022. And we're looking at data going all the way back to 2013. Historically low, right? Uh, and JP Morgan, actually speaking of Jamie Dimon, I think recently came out and said they, they expect uh, unemployment to remain around 3.5%, which is below, you know, the theorized, uh, you know, new, whatever, neutral rate from unemployment in the US, which economists said it was like four and a half or 5% previous. So it's historically low, although it looks like it's turning around, right? So uh, we've got ADP uh, data coming out here, um, which shows change in non-farm private employment that's in May, and that is slowing, right? Drastically, you can see, especially compared to the last, uh, you know, uh, going back to May of 2021, uh, right? This is the lowest print, uh, you know, by half, at least in some time. Uh, and you can actually see uh, for for uh, small businesses that actually, uh, small businesses have been shedding jobs uh, since February of this yeah. year. Um yeah. And, uh, you know, the last thing, kind of data point to look at here is that there's a Bloomberg story count mentioning mentioning hiring freeze, right, which is starting to peak. Uh, And the last time you saw that happen was obviously March of 2020. Now, those levels were much, much higher, right, Uh, you know, by at least three times. But Mm -hmm. you're still starting to see that um, that trend reverse. And the the reason for this is, is, again, that's that's like when people compare 
equity returns over the last 20 years and call that normal. Yep. Mm-hmm. No, there's nothing normal about the 13 years of QE-induced steroid jacked up uh, returns. Those are not mm-hmm. normal. And so the this this print here on hiring freeze is orders of magnitude larger than average. And, and you got to take out the outliers of kind of when people were forced literally to lock down um, and look at normal times. You know, this is three to four X normal times. And it, it, you know, everyone says, oh, you know, we're going to avoid the recession. Really? Like, how, how are we going to do that? I mean, recessions happen. They're actually, again, like winter. They're, they're a good thing. Winter is a good thing. It cleanses. We need the bad companies to go away. We need the frauds to be exposed. We need the bad actors to, to go to jail. And yes, it, it, it you know, has, has consequences. And the consequences are, yes, people lose their jobs. Um, but the amazing thing, you know, try to look at every bright side in, in every dark storm, uh, the amazing thing is during these dislocations, some of the greatest companies in history have been formed. Mm-hmm. And some of the best investment opportunities that you could ever have happened. Mostly because you get to buy stuff on sale. You know, valuations and in, in, you know, the business I'm in, venture capital, are collapsing. I mean, like collapsing 60, yeah. 80% lower. And, yeah. and that's healthy. And and look, we we had this conversation at, at IC. It's like, you know, some of those decisions we made six months ago, four months ago, yeah, we were we like everybody were drinking the Kool Aid a little bit, and it it's painful when you have a write down, but for a good company to get to buy more of it at a really good price, awesome. That's how you make yeah. lots of money. Well. And let me maybe speak to this from the employee side of view as well. Like this is my take on what's happening here. So when you hear about the Fed injecting liquidity into markets, I like read that as, I mean, they're injecting demand into markets because what happened when they say they're injecting liquidity, they make it easier to borrow money, right? Which is they're injecting credit into the economy. Um, And when you inject credit into the economy, people spend that and businesses read that as demand. Right. And so when there's a whole bunch of demand inflowing to businesses, which has led to this like mania breakneck pace, right? If you've been in any sort of honestly, I mean, even just, you know, even large companies, but certainly startups for the last 18 yep. months, crypto, tech, whatever, it's been this crazy pace of like higher, higher, higher. We got to go out and capture all of this demand. Well, the Fed is now taking that demand out. So yep. companies right now are trying to assess how much of the, that demand was actually organic, real demand and how much of that was just liquidity-induced demand from the Fed. So, you know, you're starting to see these, uh, you know, kind of bellwether companies. Let's talk about bellwether companies in our space, right? So Coinbase, I know they've taken a lot of flack for overhiring or whatever, uh, you know, but they're kind of announcing hiring freeze, layoffs, they're rescinding some offers, right? This was news that kind of came out yesterday. Gemini announced that they're uh, doing layoffs of their workforce as well. I believe, let me check this. Make sure I got this right. 10% layoffs. And, you know, there's some pushback, right? People are saying, well, blah, blah, blah. Why are these companies doing this? They Because they're responsible. Those are our mm-hmm. bellwether companies. Uh, 
let me tell you this. Maybe there are some companies out there that are just growing so fast that uh, they don't need to be doing these sorts of things, et cetera. I would say, though, that if if you aren't at least looking at hiring freeze, you know, doing some assessment, then you're not being responsible, frankly. There are, there are some companies that are the exception to this rule, but like good leadership right now should be looking at, uh, you know, payroll expenses and saying, you know, we want to make sure that we're you know, taking corrective action now so that we don't have well, to do on. it in six I mean, months. Michael, stop talking like a logical human being. Okay. <laughs> I mean, you know, mm-hmm. this, this, this crazy notion of profits and cash flow. Mm-hmm. What, 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 what are these crazy concepts you're talking about? You know, mm-hmm. responsibility. No, no, no. We live in the world of irresponsible actions, right? Yeah. I want to lose as much money as possible, right? Mm-hmm. That was a badge of honor. For the past two years. Think about this. Yeah. It was literally a badge of honor for a company to lose more money on the bottom line as long as they could show that their revenue was rising. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now your revenue growth is down. Now what? Ooh. Hmm. Now I'm going to lose a lot, a lot. And that spigot, which was I'll just go raise more money, is turned off. Because investors don't really want to just give you more money to to blow, and it and it is like a light switch, you know. Back in again, just being old, you, you've seen this before. Right? Two thousand one. I remember the story, saying, you know, Wall Street Journal. Suddenly, the quaint idea of profits is hot again. You're like, what do you mean the quaint idea of profits? Profits are are the purpose of business. Businesses, particularly the stock prices of businesses, should not rise if they don't generate profits. And, you know, yes, there is the one in a thousand example where people say, oh, they, they spend and spend and spend, you know, Amazon. We spend and spend and spend. And then when we want to turn it on, we'll be able to make profits. Yep. Yep. He, he made that happen. But the average company has no no prayer of doing that, particularly if your revenues drop. And, and revenues collapse, you know, I think 27% year over year at Coinbase. And look, you know, we still own a little Coinbase. I'm still a big fan of Coinbase. You know, I know the maxis get all mad. They're like, no, everything needs to go into cold storage. You know, everything needs to get off, off uh, exchanges and, and into to cold storage. Okay, fine. I've said it before. My dad never doing cold storage. He's just not doing it. And so mm-hmm. he's going to have a Coinbase account and others are too. So how do you how do you fix that? You, you fix it by being responsible, to your point. You know, you you right size. And you know, part of my problem with with all the employment data though is I think it's all wildly overstated mm. because of this rule they have about when people turn 65. They take them out of the labor force, even if they're yeah. still working. Like, well, no, 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 no. If somebody is working, then they're in the, oh, no, no, no. They, they, they reach retirement age. They're no longer in the, in the labor force. Wait, really? Oh, yeah. That's oh, in there? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's why, look, if you look at the labor force participation what? rate. Oh, yeah, yeah, Michael. This is, this is great. If you look at the labor force participation rate, that's the only thing that has bailed out the economists over the last or the policymakers over the last decade. And it's because the boomers just keep turning 65 all the time. And so they pluck you out of the 
workforce. And so therefore, if the workforce is smaller, then the uh, employment numbers are higher. That seems bonkers to me. There's all kinds of bonkers stuff. It's like yeah. you realize that most of those jobs that get reported uh, mm-hmm. at the end of every month, you know, the jobs report, a huge percentage of them are actually not counted. They're not jobs that are actually counted. Like they went and said, yes, you paid payroll taxes. What they do is they have something called the birth death ratio. Okay. The BLS, mm. Bureau of Labor, or Labor, whatever they're, BLS, yeah. says, hmm, we are 26 months into an economic expansion. So normally in that, X number of companies form, Y number of companies die. Therefore, we have created 70, 75,000 jobs. Like, really? Did you, did you actually count those jobs? Did you actually show proof that they paid payroll tax? No, 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 no. That, it's, just, it's just a model. And- yeah. At the peak of the of the lunacy, uh, like three years ago, remember when we were seeing those gigantic numbers right before the recession in 20? Um, <laughs> it was like 85, 90% of the jobs mm. number was just fake. I mean, it's just made up. And, yeah. But they're, they're like, well, well, that's the way we've always done it. And that term, that phrase, well, we've always done it that way makes me crazy. Yeah. Right? I mean, I, I worked at a, a, at a university and that's what they'd always say. Like, well, I need to go to New York. I'm like, okay, your per diem is, is $168. I'm like, I, I can't even stand the YMCA for $168. Well, that's the way we do it. I go, okay, well, we're gonna have to find a way around that because I can't, I can't do my job if I can't travel to New York and meet the managers. And we did, we did find a way, but, but it reminds me, I, I tell the stories. You've heard the story about the, the monkeys. Mm-mm. So the guy did the study before PETA, right? So I put these five monkeys in this glass room with a, 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 a ladder in the middle and they put a thing of bananas and the monkeys would climb up to get the bananas and they would take this fire hose and they'd blast them until <laughs> none of the monkeys would go after the bananas. And then they'd take one of the monkeys out and put another one in who had never been hit with a fire hose. And he would try to go get the bananas. The other monkeys would tackle him because they didn't just blast the monkey that was going for the bananas. They blasted them all. So after a week, they've got five monkeys who have never been hit by a fire hose and they won't go for the bananas because we've always done that. Yeah. And that's kind of where we are with all of this statistical stuff. Oh, we've always done it that way. So it's okay. Like, no, in today's world, we have the tech. To know exactly how many workers, you know, the other one that gets me is this jolts number. And, uh, you know, Jim, if you're watching, I, I'm paraphrasing here. He talks about this jolts number um, that, you know, job openings. Like, oh, look how high the jolts number is. How many job? You know why that is? It's because in the gig economy, a company doesn't just advertise in their local market anymore. They advertise county by county. There are single jobs that are being posted hundreds of times that are mm. getting counted in this, you know, openings number. Like that's one job. It's one job. Mm. You can't say it's lots of jobs because they're posting for it all over the country. And we need you know, you need to fix that. The world is different. 
Yeah. I, yeah, I completely agree. And, uh, you, you know, one thing, one thing as well, uh, you know, I mean, people should just have a healthy mistrust of data, I think in general, like if you've ever you, dug yeah. into your company's data, so I used to be a consultant and I, uh, you know, when you dig it, it's like, you know, that thing, crap in, crap out, even at the company level, right? I mean, the data that you are working with, I, I actually have a huge mistrust of businesses that say we're data driven. I think that's, <laughs> I love it. I, yes. I think in general, that is a, everyone likes to hear that, right? Oh, data-driven, not fallible to human judgment, shit yeah. like that. That's no, what the man, Fed I'm says all the time. We're going to yeah. be driven by the data, but you make yeah. up the data. You, it, yeah. I mean, and it, get, it I, I used to tell this story too. You read the Wall Street Journal. Actually, no one reads the yeah. Wall Street Journal anymore. I mean, I used to read the Wall Street Journal, but um, <laughs> you read an article where you actually have knowledge and you're like, oh, that's bullshit. That's the Dunning-Kruger effect. Right. And then you go to, the, but here's the thing, then you right. go to the next story, one right. column over and you're like, oh my God. And you circle it and you I cut know. and you send it to all the people in your company. Look how smart this is. And someone else is going, well, that's wrong. That's wrong. That's wrong. So right. if this idea that, to your point, that all the data is good, it's just not. And no, I'm not, look, we need data. We need to collect it. We need to analyze it. We need to, but healthy skepticism is really important. This episode is brought to you by Blockdaemon, the world's leading blockchain infrastructure platform. Blockdaemon's mission is simple. Make spinning up a node so easy a five-year-old could do it and so secure that any chief compliance officer in the world could sleep easy at night. In plain English, Blockdaemon allows anyone, whether you're a crypto-native fund, a financial institution, a DeFi protocol, whatever, to participate in crypto more safely. For some, that can mean participating in governance. It could mean gathering real-time and accurate data. It could mean generating yield through staking. Whatever it is, when it comes to crypto, infrastructure is edge, and there's simply no better edge offered than the one from Blockdaemon. Blockdaemon supports a range of services on over 50 protocols, and that's a growing list. They have multiple layers of risk mitigation that include regional and data center diversity, 24-7 human and automated monitoring, a full-service team of engineers to avoid technical difficulties, and things like slashing insurance. In other words, they literally make it foolproof. If your organization relies on real-time, accurate data that comes from blockchains, please, please, please click the link at the bottom of this episode and go check them out. Again, it's important. Got to click the link at the bottom. Otherwise, I won't get my credit. Two more points on this, uh, the unemployment situation here or, or layoffs and everything. So the other way to, the other thing I would, I'd be aware of as well as an employee or what employees are figuring out as well, right? When the Fed pumps liquidity into markets, that elevates the price of financial assets. That means stock, read stock of companies. And if you are an employee that took a lot of stock, um, you know, equity as part of your compensation at one of these companies, then just make sure that you have adjusted your standard of living, right? To what you're getting paid in US dollars, is what I would say. Yeah, um, no, this stock-based compensation thing, and and you know, there's the whole scam that that doesn't count as an <clears throat> as an expense. It somehow it, counts as revenue. Oh no, this this is one of the great scams of all time. I just that found this out too. This blew my mind. I no, can't no, it's believe. Unbelievable. I mean, yeah, it's unbelievable. It right. It it's so perverted of of generally kept generally accepted accounting principles that. You can have a liability to people, but somehow it shows up as as income. And so all these tech company earnings were just inflated. Now, that's because the stock price was rising. Well, when the stock price is falling, that goes into reverse in a bad way. Yeah. And and to your point, if if you've been compensating someone with a little bit of cash and a lot of stock or a lot of options, 
And now suddenly those things are underwater. To your point, how do you pay rent? How do you, and what's going to happen? And that's good for people like us. Um, <laughs> I shouldn't say it sounds predatory. Um, but there are going to be a whole bunch of people. I, that well, I don't think liquidity. it's predatory. Yeah. Right. And if you can provide liquidity to those people and you don't want, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying you're going to, you know, they're going to sell all their stock, but they're going to have to sell some to pay the bills. And those markets have a bid ask and it's, you know, Brian Estes, who we should have Brian on this show sometime. Brian is just this awesome. Brian does a great job of this. Yeah. He just great job doing this. For those of you who might um, not be fully aware of this, so what we're talking about here is stock-based compensation. And the, w- the way that actually works, right, is when a company issues equity to employees for, for whatever reason, uh, you know, that actually gets recognized on your P&L, your income statement, as revenue, right? And, the re- and people have this idea that it's not a real expense because it's not cash out of the business. It is cash out of the it – is, it is a real expense, and you understand that when there's like a liquidity event, right? So let's say you go public, right, and there's a, there's a valuation. Well, that valuation gets divided by the number of shares, right? So when you issue shares, you are increasing the denominator that that market cap or that value that investors assign to you gets divided by. So everyone that's an, an equity holder in the business, that's a very real cost, man. That is a real cost, and people might not have been paying attention before, but they certainly will be. Loss. A giant yeah. loss. Look at any of these companies that just went public or did a SPAC merger. Look at their first quarterly uh, profit and loss. And it's billions. I mean, billions of loss. But people don't penalize companies for this. And yeah. I don't know. It's it's all very bizarre. This is just a, a challenge that's going to have to get worked through. Because, you know, one of the challenges I think at Coinbase as well is they've done, what, they've got like 5,000 employees right now. I don't have these numbers off the top of my head. They probably hired 30, 40% of those, I would say, over the course of the last yeah. 18 months. Yeah. Yeah. Coinbase is trading a little above what they did at their last private raise, yeah. their valuation. Yeah. That means that most of the people that took stock-based compensation in the last uh, year or year and a half, which is probably like yeah. half the company, that's underwater. So, I mean, that, and that's really difficult for morale at a company as well. Uh, Cause you take that stock, you expect it to go up. Um, and it's pretty devastating when that works in reverse. And I think the way to read what's going on right now, um, is that there is a, there is a push pull in between employers and employees, right? There is a, there is a push pull between the power that employers in the company level have and employers at the, uh, you know, and, um, employees have. I think it's been, uh, and, it, and it's good, right? It's good when, when it kind of moves more in favor of of the employee in general, like yeah. we're all we're all we're all people here. We all we all want to live and 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 have certain rights and and uh, salaries and whatever. But uh, it probably it probably moved a little bit too far in the way of the worker. And now I think it's starting to shift back. And one something that caught my eye actually was um, I don't know if you saw this uh, declaration from Elon Musk, uh, but Elon Musk uh, he said to Tesla executives return to the office or or we're letting you go. Basically, yep. you know, if, if you aren't in the office for 40 hours a week, we'll expect that you uh, that you don't want to work here. Apple actually issued a, a very similar thing. You know, they got pushback from their um, their machine learning team, which is like internally within Apple. They're like the the untouchables. Um, and they were like, well, yeah, you don't have to go. You don't have to return to the office, but you you do if you if you want to work here. Uh, so I think what you're starting to see here, these these like little data points. Um, but that's are, just stealth layoffs, right? That's layoffs mm-hmm. without announcing layoffs. Yeah. And I don't know. I we are we are definitely in a you know retrenchment and retrenchments are painful and recessions are painful. But but that's disingenuous, right? 
if you're going to lay people off, just say you're going to lay people off. Um, but saying, well, there's there's a legal thing too, right? Which is saying, well, I didn't fire you, so I don't have to pay you, you know, uh, I don't have to pay you severance. You know, you quit because I said you had to come in the office and you decided not to come in the office. So it's your decision. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> kind of. Well, so here's, so there's this, narr- so I think there's a lot of truth to the narrative that, uh, you know, if these older, you know, kind of white guy boomers just are, are worried that their employees aren't working hard enough and that's why they want them in the office. I can tell you, I mean, so at BlockWorks, we are, I would also probably prefer people to be in the office more. And it has nothing to do with that. I'm very aware that people work extremely hard and I'm not worried about productivity in the slightest bit. But I am conscious of there is something about people being in a room together. I'm telling you for camaraderie. And all these people who are saying a remote first, you know, workforce, you don't give up anything. I just don't think you're they're being totally honest with themselves. Like you do sacrifice some amount of culture. There is something that you lose without people oh, being on. in the same room, it, it, is, especially in our business where like it's editorial and content and there's a creative element to be, it. It's just difficult. Places at once. You can't. Yeah. You can't do two things. And again, it's not politically correct. And I used to get in, in trouble about it, but it's like the super mom fallacy. Mm. Oh, I'm, 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 I'm raising my kids and I'm doing my job. I'm like, no, no, you have a job. Someone else is raising your kids. That's totally fine. I'm totally great with that decision. That's a decision I made, right? I'm not home with my kids. I'm in the office doing my job. And that's a decision. But this idea that you can do both, it's physically impossible, right? You yeah. can't be remote and collaborative. In, in, now, you can. There are, there are tools like we're using right now to, to kind of collaborate. And now, if you're sitting around together on a Zoom, yeah, they're, 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 that's better than nothing. But you lose the, something. The serendipity, the serendipity of the you pass someone in the hallway or you hear other people having a conversation. You're like, oh, I got an idea to help on that. Or, hey, does anybody else, you know, have an idea? I'm, I'm just stuck, right? That goes away. Now, tools like Slack and others, I think, can can help that a little bit. And there are collaboration tools that that have made it better than it was. So it's not quite as stark as all or none. But but there are trade-offs, as you you rightly said. And it's it's just physically impossible, right? I mean, you and I are not together right now. You are in a place I wish I was, and I am in a place that's like super hot. And uh, uh, just because you're in the Pacific Northwest, which which I was, I was, I was there for about you know 12 hours on Wednesday, uh, day trip <laughs> to Seattle. The bad old days of business travel are back. The bad old days where I did day trips for <laughs> guys. Before this recording, Mark was telling me about how he did a day trip to Switzerland. Was it 17 hour yeah, day trip? Yeah, That's a long hours. radius, big radius for day yeah, trips on, on day Mark. Trip. Yeah. <laughs> Um, like I said, the bad old days. Yeah. So I would just, I would just be aware that, um, you know, we're, we're in a different environment than we were. So I would, you know, you know, when you get flashed some big equity number that you're getting as an employee, it's probably good to assess, you know, if you're getting that from a very large, very well-established type company. Um, but honestly, like even uh, Coinbase and Gemini is not immune to market downturns, right? Or if it's this, cause this is, this is what happens too. I mean, I, I saw this tweet that, um, you know the the market cap of some of these tokens is now less than the than the uh, 
promised salary for individual developers on each project, right? So that shows you, you know, if you are taking an enormous amount of your your salary in in uh, in tokens or equity, I mean, that can that can go against you pretty sure, especially yep. when valuations are extremely high. Um, yep. I, w- I want to get your take on on two more stories here. These are uh, maybe more regulatory uh, type things, but um, you know, there is a bit a big you know announcement in, in crypto is that uh, you know there's that. The FBI is actually looking to indict uh, Nate Chastain, uh, right? So he was yeah. the former, um, he's a former OpenSea executive. I think he yeah. was head of pride. He's getting charged with insider trading uh, yeah. for NFTs. Yeah. Sorry, it's the Department of Justice. Uh, they've indicted former OpenSea head of product, Nathaniel Chastain. Um, so basically, the accus- so, so just to set the scene here, the accusation is that he was accused of buying dozens of NFTs, right? That he had prior knowledge that the assets would be featured on the NFT marketplace, right? So the basic idea is that OpenSea gets an enormous amount of traffic. Uh, as head of product, he knew which NFT collections and specific NFTs were going to be featured, you know, prominently. Uh, and that could, you know, pretty reliably lead to, uh, you know, increase in in buying, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so the quote from the U.S. attorney, Damien Williams, is that NFTs might be new, but this type of criminal scheme is not, uh, adding that Chastain's betrayal and other insider trading crimes would be stamped out, whether it occurs on the stock market or on the blockchain. Now, you know, the the, the counter to this, right, or why many folks thought that this wouldn't hold water is that NFTs have not been defined as securities, right? Mm-hmm. So insider trading laws typically apply to securities. What do you think about this? Cheating and lying or cheating and lying, right? I, I, don't, I don't care where you do it. I don't care if you do it in the bond market, in the stock market, in the grain market, in the commodities market, in baseball cards, right? If, if you cheat and lie and steal, you, you should, should get in trouble. And the, the, the initial reaction is no. Securities laws apply to securities. Therefore, you can't charge me with insider trading on the securities laws. Yeah. True. But I can charge you with insider trading. Okay. Now, that's why it's Department of Justice probably instead of SEC. And you can argue all you want on the, like, the details. Like, well, I wasn't trading securities. Okay. Did you take material non-public information and profit from it? Mm-hmm. Well, kinda, yeah, okay. That's what we're trying to stop, and we we don't want it to happen in any market because trading on material non-public information is wrong, right? I mean, mm-hmm. the average person in a marketplace is dependent on the marketplace being fair. And if somebody has an unfair advantage, that's wrong. So yep. I, I could probably argue the other side on the on the letter of the law, but this, to me, the spirit of the law is very clear. Yeah, I'm. I'm so without any comment specifically on on Nate Chastain, who, by the way, I've heard is actually like it seems like he's a pretty young guy who who made a mistake. So I don't want to comment uh, specifically on this, but what I will say, there are two things that kind of stand out to me here is I've, I saw this quote that, the, you know, the law is not an ass. Um, and the other thing this reminded me of, which is basically that, you know, even if, you know, you're doing something that doesn't conform to the letter of the law, you know, there will be, the law will find a way. Um, and this is reminds me of a thing that, uh, you know, Matt Levine has said about the regulatory apparatus in, 
in uh, the US. And he's got this great phrase, everything is securities fraud. And he basically, the, the idea is that financial markets are complicated. The way that securities fraud is, uh, you know, specifically outlined is like very vague. And it basically gives regulators some, some kind of, uh, you know, creative abilities to go after people, right? It's not, it doesn't necessarily have to be this, this, and this, and they've got, they'll, they'll kind of go after folks they, they think are bad actors. Um, and that's what this kind of reminds me of. Like if you do things that, uh, you know, yeah, are, are against the, the spirit of the law, then eventually that kind of catches Look, up with you. Here's the thing. This is, this is Martha Stewart all over again. Right. What Martha Stewart did is wrong. Yeah. But did she actually even do it, right? She had this guy that she realized, she's not a securities expert. She had this friend. Martha Stewart? Kid me. Yeah. And she's a very smart lady. But, but my point is yeah. that she was not a stock trader, right? She right. had this friend and this friend mm-hmm. said, hey, buy some of this. Now, should she have stopped to say, well, friend, do you have material non-public information that you are giving to me? And why are you giving it just to me and not to everybody else? But she didn't do that. Okay. Does that happen every single freaking day? Every mm-hmm. day. Yes. Every single day. Do people do it for way more than she did? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Does that make what she did right? No. Should she have gone to jail? I don't think so. I, I think she should have been fine, should have been chastised, maybe do some public service. But holy moly. The crime, I mean, sure didn't, punishment didn't fit the crime in my eyes, but high profile and, you know, again, you can talk about uh, non sequitur, but, you know, what uh, um, Hillary Clinton was doing in the cattle market was worse (laughs) than what Martha Stewart was doing. Now, I will argue that the person doing it for Hillary was the really bad person that Hillary kind of knew, you know, when you're getting free money, that it probably something bad is going on. You don't on. really want to look too, look too hard. But you don't want to look too deep. So, so you know, she never got in trouble, but a whole bunch of people could get in trouble. And I feel badly for this kid or guy, I shouldn't say kid, I don't know him, but I feel badly because other people, I am certain, did way worse. But Mm. as we've talked about, we are in the then they fight you phase. We are in the then they fight you phase. And they, meaning incumbents through regulators, are going to attack. And this is just another example of an attack to say, see, this world is full of fraud and bad stuff and you need to stay away. So NFTs are bad and, and digital assets are bad. And wait a second, how is this different from all the other insider? There was a whole movie, you know, Wall Street about insider trading. And then there was Ivan Boski. And I mean, there are always going to be people who break the rules. Full yeah. Story. And not all of them so, get caught. And the ones that do get caught, um, they should be punished. And, and I do think what I do believe what he did was wrong. I don't know how wrong, like I don't know how, how vast the, the network of, of, of insider information was, but clearly if you have material non-public information, you shouldn't act on it. 
So here's what I would say that I think a lot of people in crypto are sympathetic, but maybe sympathetic for the wrong reason. Because if I had to, you know, I think what um, a lot of folks might say is like, yeah, what he did was probably wrong and maybe he crossed the line. But I think it's nothing compared to what some other uh, insiders in the industry right. are doing. Right. That's what I think they'd say. Yeah. And that's a problem. Yeah. And that's so, there's, yeah. so, so there's so there's a note here that got issued from uh, the Attorney General of New York, uh, Letitia James, um, very recently, might have literally even been today. But, uh, you know, so usually when these kind of notes, so, the, you know, the headline is, right, she's warning uh, New Yorkers about cryptocurrency investments, right? Yeah, sometimes investments lost hundreds of billions in cryptocurrency investments as the market reached new lows. Now, whenever these sorts of things come out, my heckles get up, right? I will admit, I'm like, well, you know, how much money was lost investing in the stock market? Then I, then I, then I looked at some of these. More. Right, and that's true. So I looked at some of these, the risks, right, that they're saying here. Uh, and the first one, highly speculative and unpredictable value. That's the one that always kind of gets me. It's like, Okay, but, you know, then I started to read, you know, some of these other ones that they've got difficulty cashing out investments, higher transaction costs, unstable stable coins, hidden trading costs, conflicts of interest. And while I could kind of get on the defensive about some of this and say, well, this exists, I have to admit some of this stuff definitely are problems. And one of the things about bear markets, right, I think is that we as an industry need to look at ourselves. Right. And the government is going to come after crypto, right? They're not, you know, they say, oh yeah, we're friendly, we're accepting, but they're really not, right? Biden's coming out and, and uh, well, actually something just got passed in New York, right? Where they're, where they're essentially banning Bitcoin mining, right? Um, except for like the one company that this applies to that's already grandfathered in, right? So there's going to be an increased amount of scrutiny on crypto. I think these, uh, you know, what happened with Nate today is just the, just the, the tip of the iceberg, right? I think you're going to see more actions like this. What you just read is boilerplate from traditional securities. Yeah. There are hidden fees, hidden charges, uh, you know, inability to cash out. Try cashing out of an illiquid penny stock. Yeah. Right? Without losing money. I mean, Peloton. Speculative, high volatility. Peloton lost way more than most crypto assets. Way more. Yeah. Not, not more than Luna. But by the way, just one little thing. I know we don't want to talk about Luna, but how is it, you, you said that the, the, the industry, we, the industry have to, to have to be better. We do. Don't self-proclaim yourself a lunatic. <laughs> I don't aspire to be a lunatic. I don't, yeah. I, I want to be an intelligent person, a rational, reasonable person. I don't want to be a lunatic. Are you joking? So, that's the nonsense that has to stop, hmm. right? This idea yeah. that, that, oh, ha, 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 wink, wink, we're, we're, we're so dumb, we're smart. Don't be dumb. Just be smart. Just be smart. Hmm. And yes, you're exactly right. Do fees need to come down? Of course, but not tomorrow. It was like, oh, we need zero trading costs, trading, you know, uh, zero commissions, like stocks. It took stocks... 200 years to get to zero. Yeah. And it took the better part of the last 20 years to get from, you know, kind of the fixed rate, super high, like real. I mean, you, you want to talk about bad stuff going on, go back 25, 30 years into what happened in the stock market with halves and, and, you know, quarters and you can drive a truck through the spreads right. uh, before decimalization. So, 
we don't need to be there immediately, but we do need to constantly get better. We do need to constantly get better, I think is the is the point. And I think if we're being honest with ourselves, a lot of that like need to be better has dropped off the face of the map in the, in the last six to eight, 18 months is this like this mania phase has gone through. And like, you know, what I would say, what, what crypto needs to do to win, really, we need to win hearts and minds. And we're not going to win it doing stuff like this. I think, uh, you know, it, it, it kind of sucks, right? Like the new kid on the block, you have to, you have to not just be as good. You have to be better. Uh, and I think that you have to be better both in terms of the products and services that crypto as an industry produces, but I think you do need to have, you do need to, uh, there's a, there's an optics element to things as well. And crypto just has never fixed the optics element. And I thought, I thought during this last bull market that it just wouldn't matter and you power through, but like, you know what? Uh, no, I, I think I think it actually does matter, um, and yeah, you need to. See, again, we're we're beating ourselves up a little too much, in that every new market in anything, right? Whether it's yeah, postage stamps. I was a stamp collector when I was a little kid, right? Stamp collecting had all kinds of scams and frauds. Coin collecting, gun and knife collections, antiquities. I mean, the big hedge fund manager, I mean, I shouldn't, I shouldn't pick on him, but you know, Michael Steinhardt got in big trouble for some rigging antiquities sales. And I mean, so any market, people are going to look at it and say, huh, how can I exploit that for my advantage? Or, hey, this is a speculative market. Look at the roaring 20s in stocks. You had people, the word, the term bucket shop exists for a reason, right? There were people scamming people by lending them money to buy these little penny stocks and pumping them up and they were feeding the ducks. And we we just write that off as ancient history, but now it's happening in, in NFTs. Look, are, are JPEGs of, you know, animals or, or people interesting? Yeah, some of it, some of it's art. Some of it. A lot of it, is just me too ish kind of I want to be in the in the in the bubble, but is the idea of NFTs or digital property rights going to be with us forever? Hundred percent. I, I don't know if you if you heard the song Crypto Boy, um, this this TikTok thing. Look at it today, <laughs> no, and you'll you'll thank me later because you're gonna have it stuck in your head now for the next <laughs> all weekend. But but go to TikTok and look at Crypto Boy. And it's mm. this song that this this girl did, woman. Oh, um, I have I have seen this actually. Yeah. And yeah, it's a I catchy tune. This. It's like it's as good as Avril Lavigne in her prime. Um, mm. I actually like the song, <laughs> but I have composed. I haven't done it yet, but I have composed. Because what my daughter's like, you are not going on TikTok. I have actually composed <laughs> the the open verse challenge to say, you know, look, you don't want to hear about my NFTs. Fine, but here's the mm. thing: NFTs are about ownership. And royalties. And if you had created an NFT, then instead of ByteDance getting rich, you'd be getting rich. Well, guess what she did? Pussy Riot made her do an NFT. So now she can actually benefit. So ownership of things and assets and creative content is going to happen. And the fact that this guy made a bad decision by buying things that he had material, non-public information about. Sure. Now, should he get a slap on the wrist? I don't think he should do jail time. I don't know how, I don't know what the Department of Justice rules are, but 
He should do some community service, disgorge him of his profits, maybe even do a commercial saying, I made a mistake. Don't do this. Yeah. But I don't know. I, I- I want to depart even from the Nate because I, I just don't, uh, you know, I, I don't know him personally. But what I'm, I'm more talking about, like, you know, even when you get, so I also, I'm a huge believer in NFTs. Uh, they make an enormous amount of sense to me. And what I would say to you is, well, and, you know, like a little thought experiment uh, for those of you out there. Um, let's say you've got $10,000 to spend. Would you spend it on a really nice suit or would you spend it on a really cool profile picture? And honestly, I know that the, maybe the older people listening to this is like the nice suit. I'm telling you, if I had, if I could spend 10000 and get some really cool yeah. thing that everyone thought was cool, I knew when they hit my profile, it was going to be a status symbol. I would take the profile picture every time. And you can look at me and say maybe young, but like how many people see my profile? How many people see me in a suit? A, a nice no, suit I'm wearing like watch, two times a year. Rolex, baby. I mean, right. people spend $200,000 yeah. to buy a fancy watch. Why? So when they walk down the street on those occasional moments where the cuff doesn't cover it up, someone sees it and says, oh, he's really cool. He's really rich. Right. No different. And but but it's even bigger than that. One, it can be, oh, you're cool. But also it can mean, oh, you're one of me. You're part of my community. I'm going to help you. I'm Mm going to bond with you. I'm going to include you in some cool stuff that we're working on. So there's a there's a. A, a community effect. And when the digital age allows communities to become economies, now that profile pic actually has way more value than a suit. A suit, you know, maybe someone whistles at you when you're walking down the street or someone says, oh yeah, they're, they're sharp. Or in an interview, maybe you get the job because you, you look better than the other people. But I'm with you that our identity is moving into the metaverse, right? That, that physical world and the, and the digital world are, are inter- integrating. And therefore, spending capital to enhance our digital image. Why do we all work so hard to curate our content on our LinkedIn or our you know, Twitter feed or whatever it is? We work hard. I mean, I, I didn't pick my prof- – no, I, don't, I don't have a, an NFT or a board ape or whatever. I mean, I have – I have a cartoon of myself and my son. I do that intentionally. Why did I do that intentionally? Well, one, someone said, oh, you look good in that. I'm like, okay, good. I'll use that one. Um, but there's also, why do I include my son? Well, there's a reason. And so should I pay the 10 grand to, to you know, or 100 grand or 200 grand to buy one of the, the communities? Well, not for me personally yet, um, but I, I totally agree with you. Hmm. I I think the the thing about NFTs too is that um it, it like it is a status symbol it is also a community thing like it's this is where analogy uh you know it, it's I think it's more than just the fancy suit it's more than just the Rolex it's weirdly like an online um country club almost uh, because it gets you access to this community now the I think the thing is though right now what a lot of people Look at NFT. I mean, let's let's call a lot of NFTs what they are at the current time. Doesn't mean they will always yeah. be. They're they're mm-hmm. pump and dump schemes. They they are. They're pumped run by insiders and like they pump it all up yeah. and then people dump it. And that is not that is not good behavior. That is just. Uh, I mean, it's just 
Yeah, I, I th- look, I, I just think I'm I'm look, I'm also clearly right. I spent hours of my life debating this with people. Right. Uh, you know that what crypto is today is not necessarily what it would be in the future. I'm obviously yeah. a big proponent of the future, but this is the time right to uh, to improve on stuff that we know probably should be improved Amen. on. Um, Amen. Yeah. Um, Best work gets done in bear markets. I, I'm with you. Um, all right, Mark, that's all the time we have for today. Um, this has been a fun one. Um, As always, best hour of my week, and I will see you uh, back here same time next week, my friend. Enjoy the weekend, my friend. You too. Cheers. Cheers.